please stand for the reading of the word. Uh, today's reading is from 1 Colossians 9 through 14. And so from the day we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing in fruit every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Richard and Brandy. Appreciate it. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. Um, if you're new here, we're glad that you are here. My name is Frank, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to start this, um, uh, this series that uh, we're beginning today in uh, Colossians. And, uh, but before I get there, I have some, uh, some uh, I don't know, housekeeping to take care of. Uh, that is really, I think, pretty important. Uh, the first thing is um, last weekend was really good, I think. And that's not by my estimation, but by the feedback we've received. Uh, the whole, the resurrection weekend, we called it from the Good Friday services to Saturday morning brunch and the egg hunt and then the three services Sunday, doing it in the round a lot of work went into doing that. I'm so thankful for our staff that put in a lot of extra hours to do that, but also all the volunteers who stepped forward to make uh, this last weekend happen. It was absolutely incredible, and we really appreciate you guys. Thank you. Yeah. The, the only thing I kind of missed from Resurrection Weekend was I was hoping that my arm would be released from the tomb on the same weekend. <laughs> But I guess a week, uh, you know, a week later isn't too bad. So I'm glad to be out of this thing. I will tell you this. Um, yeah. <laughs> now I can gesture. Okay. I told Malia this morning. It's the first time in six weeks I was able to wash my hair, and she was grossed out. But at any rate, um, uh, I was washing it with my left hand just to make sure. Here's the weird thing, though, and and I can't help but think about just. Uh, life experiences as it relates to the truth of Scripture. Uh, this morning I was driving here, and uh, I was getting out of the car, and, and I was thinking, I, I, first of all, I hated that immobilizer. Has anybody ever had one of those immobilizers on your show? It's awful, right? It is absolutely awful. And you look forward to that day that you get, you, you get to get rid of it. And, and as I got out of the car, I was thinking, I, I, don't, I don't feel right without it. I, it's like I need this immobilizer to be back on my arm. Now, I admit, I, I got to start not wearing it on Friday, and, and um, I still do wear it in the grocery store because I found that people stay away from me in the grocery store, and that's an <laughs> advantage. Um, but this morning, I, was, I, I feel sort of wrong without it. And immediately, I thought of how, um, and, and Paul's even going to talk a little bit about this in Colossians. Immediately, I thought about how when we come to Christ, and I experience this too, when we come to Christ, 
we come to him essentially with this metaphorical ball and chain attached to our leg. And that ball and chain contains two major things. It contains our sin and it contains our morality. You know, how we think we're going to be good enough for God. And when we come to Christ, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he comes down and metaphorically cuts that chain off of our ankle. And we are free. And so often what we do is once we're free, we turn around and notice that we don't have the ball and chain anymore, and we just go and pick it back up and carry it with us. And we need to remember that, that Christ has released us from that and that we are now free, even though it feels uncomfortable at times. We, we want to race to our sin. I get that. We're still dealing with our flesh. But also we want to race to our morality and our legalism rather than racing to Christ. And that, that became a picture of that for me today. And so I just want to remind you that as we go through the book of Colossians, one of the great things about what Paul is saying is he's trying to correct what's going on in the church at Colossae, but he's also in the midst of that correction constantly reminding them that they are saints, they are brothers and sisters, they are in Christ, and no matter how much correction is there, God sees them as holy and righteous, and that's the great gift of the gospel and the resurrection. So I wanted to share that with you. Uh, a couple other things. I know, it's like, when are you going to get to the sermon? Okay, wasn't that just a sermon? Anyway, um, something else. Uh, a number of weeks ago, we asked if you would be interested in uh, giving money to Redemption Central to help our brothers and sisters in partnership in Ukraine and in other areas around there that are struggling because of what's going on there. And I wanted to report to you uh, that uh, throughout Redemption, we have raised more than $100,000 for relief for them. So that's been really good. Thank you for that. Uh, last thing I want to mention is that um, we do have a membership class coming up. It's going to be uh, two Thursday nights from 7 to 7.45. Uh, it'll be Thursday night, May, May 5th, and Thursday night, May 12th. It'll be uh, in room four, which is right across over there. Uh, I'm going to be leading it along with uh, Trey, Pastor Trey. And uh, what, the one thing we would ask you that would help you, if you, you're going to come to that membership class, it would help prepare you if you would go to our website and read the membership packet before you come so that you can uh, gather all your questions. Because uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit, we'll tell you like the story of redemption and we'll talk a little bit about our doctrine, but uh, we also want to leave plenty of time for you to be able to ask questions about that. All right. All of that is uh, out of the way now. We have a new series that we're starting. Uh, it's sort of contrasted to the Gospel of John, which took us about 15 years to get through. This, this series is only going to be 10 weeks. It's the New Testament letter of Colossians. It's a very short letter, only four chapters. It's known as one of Paul's prison epistles, meaning he wrote it while he was in prison in Rome. And I'll get to a little bit of that history in a minute. And by the way, we do have uh, study guides that were put together for all of the redemptions. If you're interested, they're back at our Connect desk. They're uh, really helpful, and they're $5 a piece. That just covers our cost for those study guides if you're interested in getting one of those. Uh, what I'm going to do today is uh, give you just a few intro uh, comments about uh, the church, about the letter, about the city of Colossae, the ancient city of Colossae, and, and then we're going to go over the first 15 verses um, of, uh, I'm sorry, the first 14 verses of it. 
Uh, here's one other thing I would say about this series that I, I guarantee you will be very helpful to you in the midst of this series. Uh, I would suggest that over the next few weeks you read the book of Acts in the New Testament uh, so that you can have a better understanding of the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul. Uh, about half of the book of Acts is really about the Apostle Paul and, and what he goes through, how he starts as Saul, and he's not even a Christian. His Damascus Road um, uh, conversion, his three missionary journeys, his trials, all, all of those things. So it would be helpful to read the book of Acts. It's also one of the most readable books in the Bible. It's, it's, it's a great book. So let's move into some introduction material. The, the city of Colossae, it, it, at, this, at this time, in the mid-first century, it's a relatively small city. About 25,000 people lived in Colossae at the time that Paul wrote his letter. Uh, so nothing like, let's say, Corinth. Now, Paul wrote letters to the church in Corinth as well. We know that at the same time, the city of Corinth, which was maybe a couple hundred miles away from Colossae, Corinth had 250,000 men in that city. So that didn't include uh, women and children and also people who were not registered as citizens, bond servants. So Colossae, uh, uh, Corinth was huge compared to Colossae, uh, possibly 750,000 people there. Um, and so I'm just trying to give you some idea of, of, of the size of it. Uh, Corinth was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. Um, Colossae was just sort of an also-ran at the time. And yet Colossae and Corinth had many of the same or similar spiritual problems. There, there was a lot of overlap in the way Paul writes to these two churches. Uh, Colossae was once a very substantial city, but early in the first century, the Roman government chose to construct the major east-west thoroughfare, highway, and, and uh, byway for commerce, um, not through Colossae, but through a city called Laodicea, which was just 10 miles northwest of Colossae. So Colossae missed out on having this major thoroughfare going through that. And so in the wake of that, Colossae started to uh, go down in size and Laodicea kind of exploded. It's like, um, I wasn't around and I don't know if any of you were around, but it's like a city that lost out to the interstate highway system last century in the 50s when they started building that. Uh, all the cities wanted to have the interstate highways going through their city to help with commerce and, and uh, they they didn't like losing out to that. So Colossae, the, I read a couple of commentators that said that Colossae is now considered an unimportant city in the Roman Empire, but it's not unimportant to God. It gets its own book in the Bible. Uh, Colossae is located about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus as well as, as, well as planting the church in Ephesus. It's in modern-day Turkey. The main industries of the city at the time were wool and purple dye, and the city was also known for having a devoted angel cult. And the church at Colossae, Paul, uh, it was planted sometime around 53 or 54 AD, though it was not planted by the Apostle Paul. His influence in that church is part of their legacy. So I want to give you some historical markers that might help you understand where we are in this. In the first century, Jesus is crucified in AD 30. Uh, Paul's Damascus Road experience, his conversion, is 34-ish AD. Uh, Paul then spends two different stints in the Roman prison. He, he goes there 
in 60 and, and stays there for 18 months into the year 61. And if you want to know about how he got there, you would read the last five or six chapters of the book of Acts because that's his trial and how he ends up appealing to Caesar and how he ends up uh, going to Rome. And then uh, he's released because Caesar finds him not guilty of what they're charging him with, but then eventually they arrest him again and he goes back in 64 and 65 and then he's executed uh, after that. Uh, Paul writes to the church at Colossae uh, probably in 61. He writes them during his first stint in prison. Now, there's a book in the Bible also in the New Testament called Philemon. Philemon is a guy. Paul writes to him from prison around the same time, asking him to release his slave Onesimus from his uh, bondservant obligations to him. And, and uh, Philemon was actually a part of this church in uh, Colossae. So, so what happened was Paul was in prison and he receives a report while he's there that there were some serious issues in the church, and so he needs to write to them as an apostle, as one with the authority of Christ to be able to do this. And here's, here are some of the issues, the major issues. Number one, there is a lot of false teaching going on in this church. By the way, that's not unusual. There's been false teaching going on in churches uh, every century since uh, Jesus was raised. That's just part of the deal. And it's one of the things that um, shepherds, pastors, and elders have to guard against in their congregation. But one of the major problems was that worldly philosophies were entering into the church. So they were starting to mix the, the true faith of the gospel doctrine with worldly philosophies and uh, popular cultural themes, things like that. And so Paul was pushing back against that. There were also in Colossae a, a number of pagan cults, such as this angel cult. By the way, I want to make sure for you guys that love baseball, this is not about the baseball team in Anaheim. This is like, okay, and by the way, you know, most of us are Brewers fans anyway, so we wouldn't even be talking about that. Sorry, I know, there's Cubs fans in here, and that's, yeah, I know, that's the end of it, all right. Back to the message. <laughs> One last thing, Paul writes to talk about their very poor gospel application to life relationships. In fact, in June, we're going to have kind of a three-week mini-series in the midst of Colossians that's out of the book of Colossians where we're going to talk one Sunday about marriage, we're going to talk one Sunday about parenting, and we're going to talk one Sunday about the gospel in the marketplace. So Paul's desire in this letter is to frame and exalt Jesus as God and as Savior and to keep the people in the church at Colossae from turning away from Jesus in favor of false teachings worldly philosophies, and various doctrinal heresies. Uh, last thing before we get into the text, uh, there are two people of interest that are mentioned in the book of Colossians. Number one is Timothy. Uh, Timothy, again, if you read the book of Acts and you know anything about the historical Timothy, uh, he's Paul's spiritual son and co-laborer in the gospel. Again, read the book of Acts, and in chapter 16, you get some uh, interesting background on Timothy. Timothy eventually does become the, church, uh, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, but he also hung out with Paul some while he was in prison in Rome. He would visit him and help take care of him. Um, and, and Timothy was there with Paul during this first prison stint and there when he wrote this letter. And, and uh, towards the end of the New Testament, you'll see that uh, during uh, Paul's second 
uh, prison stint, he wrote Timothy twice while he was pastor of the church at Ephesus. And those letters are cleverly titled 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And then there's this guy, Epaphras. Epaphras is mentioned twice in this letter. And we'll see him today. And we'll see him also on the last Sunday, the 10th Sunday uh, of this uh, series. Uh, he's a major player. He's the one who came from Colossae, traveled from Colossae all the way to Rome, quite a distance, to visit Paul in prison and give him a report on the church and say, I, I think we need some correction here. Uh, Epaphras was a native of Colossae, and he uh, helped plant churches all over the region, including the church in Colossae. He also planted the church in Laodicea and in Heropolis. So now you have all the background in context, so let's go ahead and dive in. So verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul introduces himself as an apostle. He doesn't always do that. Uh, most often he will introduce himself as a bondservant or a slave or a prisoner, but here he introduces himself as an apostle, and he says, and that's by the will of God, and the reason he does this is because it's important that he establishes his authority in writing this letter of correction to uh, the church that, that is there, and, 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 he, and he begins to reference and look back at Acts chapter 9, which is where he has this Damascus Road appearance, uh, uh, conversion, where he's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians because he's a, his name was Saul at the time. He's a professional religious Jewish person who's very angry that people think that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he's the Messiah. And he's going up there to persecute them, to arrest them, to drag them back, and even to execute uh, some of these Christians. And on his way to Damascus, the resurrected Jesus appears to him, knocks him off his ride, blinds him, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So when, when there is persecution of the church, Jesus takes that personally. He says, why are you persecuting me? And, and Paul's, or Saul's answer, before he changes his name to Paul, Saul's answer is, who are you, Lord? So right out of the gate, Saul knows, Paul knows he's having an experience with the resurrected Christ. And this gives him his, his authority. An apostle in that first century had to have been with Jesus in some measure, way, shape, or form. This makes him an apostle. And in that exchange, Jesus specifically calls Paul to ministry. And I've mentioned this before. Uh, Jesus gives him um, his job description as a missionary for the gospel, and it's two bullet points, and I don't know why anybody would want this job description, but he says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You're Jewish. You hate the Gentiles. I'm sending you to your enemy. I'm sending you to people that you think are unclean so that you can give them the good news of who I am. So you got to go to your enemy. you got to go to people that you previously hated, but now you're going to be reconciled with. And second of all, here you go. You're going to suffer for it. So anybody else want to sign up for that, for that job description? So that's what Jesus does. So he says, I'm an apostle. Okay? And then he calls the people 
in Colossae, he says, you are saints and faithful brothers, and the implication is brothers and sisters. You are saints, and you are faithful brothers and sisters. This reminds us that no matter how deeply we get into these um, pathways that are incorrect, that are moving away from the gospel, uh, pathways of sin, even though we are in Christ, we have the tendency to get pulled in all these directions. The first thing out of the gate that Paul tries to do with this church is remind them, you are in Christ. I have some correction for you, yes, but you are in Christ. You are guaranteed 100%. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are saved. But now let's talk about what that should look like because you're missing the mark in some areas. All of us fit into that category. And so we should be able to accept the correction. So he says, even though they're missing the mark, Paul, Paul's theology is correct. They are in Christ and they stand righteous and holy before God. Let me tell you something. I, I would argue that the number one reason people quit coming to a church is that they believe they've been disqualified for salvation because of their sin. That's the number one reason, I think. Now, I know some people quit coming to church because their preferences have been violated. They don't like something that we did. They, we changed something, the music, uh, the pre, whatever it is, uh, you know, the coffee, uh, parking, you know. We changed something, okay? I know a lot of people leave churches for that. I really believe, though, the number one reason people leave church is because they think they've been disqualified and they're ashamed and they're embarrassed. And that's the last thing they should do. The, during those times, the, the thing that you need the most is the community. You need Christ, and you're going to get that in your local church. And, 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 and the thing is, we just don't ever hear about it. We always hear about the complaints. People are very forward and open with their complaints. But they don't, we don't hear about people who leave because they feel like they've been disqualified. And the reason is because they're ashamed. They just sort of drift away. And, and we never see them again. They're quiet and embarrassed about it. And I just want to say again, you cannot out-sin God's grace. It's impossible. Can't. And then notice he says, grace and peace to you. Look at the order. If you're going to have the peace of God, you must first have received grace from God. And the way to receive grace from God is to turn, repent from your life that you're living without Jesus and repent and turn towards Jesus and embrace him. Then you receive the grace. So now Paul, for the next several verses, which is what we're going to look at for the rest of the morning, he prays for the church. He prays for the people in the church. This is fairly common in his letters to open up with a prayer for the church, and that's what we're going to look at the rest of the way. The first paragraph of that prayer, there's two. Here's the first one. He writes that we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul starts this prayer for the Colossians with encouragement, gratitude, and assurance of their standing before God in Christ. 
He compliments their faith. He speaks of their place in heaven. He reminds them of both the gospel, the good news in Christ, which is there, and of its truth. And then in verses 7 and 8, he sets Epaphras up for success. So if he's going to write them a letter of correction, they're going to be thinking, all right, who told him that we were doing these things? And they're going to know it's Epaphras, and so they might be a little mad at that rat fink Epaphras, if you understand what I'm saying. And so what he's doing is he's trying to set Epaphras up. He's saying, listen, yes, he, he gave this report, but, but you need to understand that really his report was also filled with your faith and your love and how you are leaning into the truth and how you are in Christ. I'm not, there is no way, shape, or form that I'm telling you that you are disqualified from the faith. You need to thank Epaphras for giving a full and robust report about what's happening. But also I want to spend a little time in verse 6. I think we need to hit this hard in our contemporary situation. I'll start in the middle of verse 5. He says, Of this, the gospel, you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So that phrase, in the whole world it is bearing fruit. I want you to remember that Paul is writing this letter while he's sitting unjustly and unfairly in prison. And he's writing that the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. And I want you to hear this. Just because it's hard where you are, doesn't mean that the gospel isn't prevailing. If things aren't to your liking, it doesn't mean that God isn't at work. In fact, often, God is most at work when there is hardship and your preferences aren't being met. Again, I've mentioned this a little bit uh, during the Wednesday night Bible studies. Uh, I'll mention it now. Um, lately, there have been, and this, this runs in cycles. I remember it happened in the 90s. It happened in the early 2000s, and it's happening again there have been so many essays lately about how the church, Big C Church, the Christian church in America, is not doing well. And, and, and I've read some of them. And, and here's what I found, very similar to the ones in the 90s and the early 2000s. None of these ever, essays ever seem to ask, so what is God up to in the midst of this hardship? What's he doing? What's he trying to show us? What's he trying to teach us? Rather, what happens is they just diagnose the problem as bad or troublesome and then says, what do we do to regain our position? And these essays just never seem to talk about how well the church is actually doing in other continents. Because <laughs> it is doing really well in other continents. Okay? And so honestly, I've pretty much quit looking at reading and listening to the white noise of church experts leaving God out of the discussion of how church ought to be led. And most of my current reading time is now spent on biographies and histories. And in fact, I would argue that the most helpful information about church for me is now coming, albeit indirectly, it's coming from authors who are not a part of the church or who are not necessarily writing about church and don't even really believe in Jesus but they're giving me insight as to what's going on in the world and culture and, and how the church is struggling to, to respond against that. 
So from where I sit, I'll just tell you, and, and you can come up and tell me, point me to some encouraging directions if you have any. But from where I sit, most of the stuff I see coming out of Christian quarters these days is tickle the ears, look how relevant I am stuff. And that's a problem. You see, God never intended, hear this, God never intended the church in America to be the dominant political, psychological, or sociological force and the extent to which we try to make it that way, God is just going to push back on us because that's not the purpose of the church. His plan for the church has always been the same. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Teach his word, wisdom, and will. Know him and love him. Love each other and love our neighbors and our community. And in the process, be small about it. Be quiet about it. Exude humility as we do it. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about our founding pastor, Tom Schrader. I'm sure some of you are shocked. I talk about him every Sunday, it seems like. Um, so Tom never went to seminary. He never got a Bible degree. He never was trained in church planting. He was never formally trained in, in public speaking or in preaching. Okay? His bachelor's degree was in sociology, so apparently if you want to plant a big church in Phoenix, what you need to do is get a degree in sociology. Anyway, think about, think about his lack of credentials, okay? And yet, Tom planted what became a magnificent church in Gilbert, not by his power, but by his power. Look at that right arm. Look at that. That's cool. Okay. <laughs> He also poured his life into young leaders and taught them to be humble, small, and loyal to the gospel. And in humility, he helped spearhead the merger of East Valley Bible Church, the church he planted, and Praxis, the church that Justin Anderson planted, into Redemption Church and then quietly stepped away. And here's the best part of this story. Do you have any idea how many publishers, Christian publishers, came to him over the years and asked him to write books about this. How did you do it? What's your methodology? Can you give us the formula? Can you give us the recipe? You know what his answer was every single time? He said, well, it would be a short and boring book and nobody would read it. I'll give it to you right now. You can write it down. Chapter 1, God called his servant. His servant responded and God caused the growth. He must increase, I must decrease, the end. That's his book. That's it. You see, what that should remind us of is that church work is both easy and hard. The easy part, the part that gives us a lot of freedom, is that we get to rely on God for the results. The hard part is that so many people want us to rely on our wisdom and on us and our schemes. And that's one of the biggest challenges. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't work hard. In fact, if you're looking for an easy gig, please don't start working at a church because it is hard in that respect. Uh, Craig Groeschel, who has planted many churches throughout the United States and, and is a leader in the uh, Christian community, um, he's written books. But one of the things he writes about is uh, it's amazing how many people are called to ministry uh, and at the same time they believe they are called to not work very hard and that's a problem. And so it is hard work but the freedom is that God causes the growth. 
If, if God doesn't build the house, the workers labor in vain. And there's freedom there. And it's going to be it's going to be like this until Jesus comes again. So now let's wrap up this prayer that Paul has for them and get us set up for next Sunday's message. Verses 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the, lights, the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul really loves run-on sentences. Have you ever noticed that? He kind of writes like a German philosopher where you start a sentence on one page and three pages later you have no idea what's going on but there hasn't been a period. You know, so anyway. Uh, what he does here is he's still praying. There's intercessory prayer, but he's also kind of teaching through the praying. He's also kind of teaching in that. And there's quite a bit here. For instance, look at verse 9. Paul's main prayer for them is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, wisdom, and discernment. His main prayer for them is that first and foremost, they would know God. Okay? And... and and if you don't think this is a theme for Paul and you don't think it's important, let me just read it. You don't have to turn there, although it's a few pages to the left. But listen to Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul is praying for the church at Philippi. He writes this letter about the same time as well. And he writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And, and you know, people read that and they get to, Love may abound more. Yes, love, love. Okay, good, love. Okay, but then Paul gives some definition to that love. He says that your love may abound more and more with what? Emotions and feelings? No, with knowledge and discernment. With all knowledge and discernment. The proper way, the truthful way, the gospel-centered way, the God way, the biblical way of loving is by first and foremost knowing who God is, pursuing his will, and living a life of discernment out of that. That's biblical love. That's the only kind of love that would send God's son to the cross. It's, it's not an emotional what's in it for me love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that pursues depth and wisdom with God. So that, verse 10, you may approve what is excellent. You need discernment to be able to approve what is excellent. And so that you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this is an important part of what Paul is trying to get at. You got to know God. You got to pursue his will because that's going to give you wisdom and discernment. And believe me, in this dark world filled with sin, you need wisdom and discernment to be able to navigate your life through that. If you're foolish, if you're without God, you're going to have problems navigating your way through this dark and sinful world. Uh, it's interesting. I, th this is not a condemnation. It's just an observation. I seldom get people asking me to pray that they might know God better. 
And yet that would be Paul's prayer for us. And by the way, this isn't just a spiritual exercise. If you look at verses 10 through 12, you find out that there's a point to knowing God and his will and his wisdom and his discernment. And, and, and in a general sense, it is to recognize the false teaching that is besieging the church at Colossae. And we'll spend some time talking about that during this series, especially when we get into uh, the next three or four weeks of the series. But specifically, in verses 10 through 12, we need to know God's wisdom, will, and discernment. And then I'm going to give you a bunch of so that's. Okay? So we need to know God's wisdom, will, and discernment so that, verse 10 we would walk in a manner worthy of our place in his kingdom, worthy of the gospel that he has given to us in Christ. So what does it mean when Paul says walk this way? Uh, to walk is an ancient Greek colloquialism for, that means to live your life in this way. So in several of Paul's letters, when he gets to the application part of his letter, the gospel application, he will say, therefore, because you are in Christ... Walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. He's always pointing us in that direction towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? So we also need to know God's will, wisdom, and discernment so that, verse 10, we would bear good fruit in everything that we are doing in our family and with our friends, in our community, in the workplace, and in the market, at school, wherever and whenever. And bearing fruit in a biblical spiritual sense means that others would see in us that there is something joyously and gratefully different in us. Paul writes to the church uh, in Galatia, and he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. People should be able to look at us who are in Christ and, and see that, that fruit. And see that that makes us different. Now, here you go. Not odd. Our goal is not to be odd. Our goal is to be different in a good way. And that difference is Jesus. We need to know God's love, his will, his, his wisdom, and his discernment. So that, verse 10 also, we would continue to increase in our knowledge of God. The more we know of him, the better off we are. We should know God's will and wisdom so that, verse 11, we would be strengthened in and by his power. Not our power, not the world's power, not the culture's power. We need to know God's will, wisdom, and discernment so that, verse 11, we would be patient and joyful. We need to know God's will, wisdom, and discernment so that, verse 12, we would live a life of thanksgiving and gratitude and not one of whining, complaining, and victimhood. And then finally, in verse 12, we need to know God's will, wisdom, and discernment so that we would understand that in Christ, we, were pe we are people of the glorious inheritance of the kingdom of God as his beloved children. And then verses 14 and 15 are the gospel, what Christ has done for us. In Christ, we have forgiveness of our sins now and forever. He goes to the cross, he went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin that we could not pay. And then three days later, he rose from the dead to claim his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And in him, we have this new resurrected life as well. His resurrection claims victory. In Christ, we are redeemed and delivered from the darkness of this wicked and sin-stained world. And in Christ, we have been transferred to the only place that will give us the fulfillment 
and purpose that our souls desire, and that's the kingdom of Jesus. This is a powerful prayer. And it's not just for that church in the first century. It's for us as well, and we should appropriate it to us. And it's a powerful prayer in the midst of what's going to be, for all of us, a powerful letter. So as, as I kind of wrap things up, I, I want to just reiterate something and maybe say it differently. You think about the sovereignty of God. God is, if God isn't sovereign, if he isn't in charge of everything, there's no maverick molecule in the universe anywhere outside of God's purview. God is sovereign. You think about the sovereignty of God. And you think about Jesus' words and teachings in the Gospels. And then specifically, you think about Paul's letters in the New Testament. And if you don't believe any of it, that's one thing. And, and there's not a whole lot we can do about that. But like Paul, we would pray for you. But, but really, we're going to proclaim and teach and leave the results up, up to God. That's, that's what we can do. But... If you're here, you're a Christian, you claim faith in Christ, you believe this, then you know there is no way the good news, there's no way the gospel of Jesus is ever going to go away. It's been around for 2,100 years. What's going to stop it now? You also know that there's no way the church, big C church, the bride of Christ is going to wither and die. It's just not up to us. Now, it may not look exactly the way you want it to, but it won't go away. The church exists by the power of God and the resurrected Jesus. We can't bring it down. False teaching comes and goes, but God remains. And you also know that there's no way we'll ever reach a time or a place on this earth when there's no one left who will proclaim the message of Jesus. Until Jesus comes again, there will always be a gospel message. So, if you're worried about the church and its longevity, or if you're worried about the gospel and the efficacy of its message and mission, or specifically and personally, if you're worried about your salvation and your standing before God, I ask you this question. What are you worried about? What are you worried about? We're in God's hands. We are recipients of his love and grace through Jesus Christ. And this is one of the primary messages that we will get through this letter to Colossae that Paul has for us. So we should be encouraged and grateful and joyful. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you that In prison, your Holy Spirit came and inspired Paul to write these words. These words of love and grace and truth, these words of correction and warning, they're all helpful and important to us. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit filling us, we would embrace this teaching as it points us to who your Son is and what he's done for us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that in in his name, amen. So we come to a time of reflection and response to everything that's happened in this service so far. We're going to 
sing along with the choir, or if you just prefer to listen to them, I kind of prefer just listening to them. Don't want to ruin it with my voice. Thank you all for being here. Appreciate it. Um, we're going to do two more songs, and while we do that, we're going to take communion, the Lord's Supper. There are going to be times, uh, there are going to be people standing in the wings too, elders, deacons, staff, if you want to pray with somebody during this time as well. We are also today in the process of transitioning back to pre-COVID uh, communion. And so we actually have the bread and the juice do we, and we have the wine, too. Yeah, the bread, the juice, and the wine that you take the piece of bread and you dip it in either one if you want to take communion that way. We still have the individual kits. We also have gluten-free individual kits. I don't know if we have gluten-free bread. Next week, we might have donuts and coffee up here for you. I'm just not sure anymore. But at any rate, we have the elements of the Lord's Supper here. And, and as... People of faith, people who have embraced Jesus, we come to this in celebration because we do have salvation in Christ. Now, these were somber words that he spoke when he broke the bread for his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then later when he holds up the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. That's pretty somber. And it does remind us that we need the confession of our of our falling short of God, and we need a Savior to be able to reconcile us to Him. That's true, but it's also a celebration when we step out into this, into this aisle and come and take these elements. We celebrate that Christ has done that for us. So let's do that now.
Amen. Let's thank this choir for joining us this morning. I'm going to read I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as our benediction and you're going to hear me say a couple of things I want you to tune into. One, you're going to hear this call you beloved. Just receive that word as you're sent out this week that you are beloved. Next, he's going to say, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Remember that from here, you're being sent out as ambassadors of Christ into all that you do this week. So hear those two things as I read our benediction and we go from here. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And praise God for that. Go in peace. Live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.